Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Today, I ask all members of this house to take action against illegal blockades that are harmful to Canadians. Do you regret endorsing a convoy that is attacking the fundamental democracy of our country? The party that will have stood with that Prime Minister is that member and his NDP colleagues, and it's shameful. It is time for you to go home. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and half-assing an invasion. Today, the so-called Freedom Convoy is spreading. Memes abound of dictators laughing at us for calling Russia, China, and North Korea authoritarian. And somewhat quietly in the midst of all that noise, Canada is helping to arm Ukraine to brace for imminent impact from Russian troops. What is our role in Ukraine, really? Joining me this week, Emily Nicola is back. She's the columnist at the Montreal Gazette and Le Devoir. Hi, Emily. Hello. Murad Hamadi is also back. He's a reporter at The Logic, back in Ottawa. Hey. And Jason Markasov joins us after a long time. He's a contributor at McLean's. Long time no see, man. Nice to be back. Okay, let's get into it. Since our last episode, a lot has happened and is still happening. So full disclosure, we're recording this on Friday because we thought we could take the long weekend as, well, a long weekend. We're now over three weeks into the occupation of Ottawa. And as we're convening on Zoom, the police have started arresting the organizers of the protest. By the time you listen to this episode, police will have cleared downtown Ottawa and removed the convoy's various camps and an emergency debate at the House of Commons about the Liberals' invocation of the Emergencies Act will have started. The act allows the RCMP to enforce municipal bylaws and provincial offenses. It can freeze the assets of anyone who has supported the convoy. There could be insurance implications for participating trucks as well. 
Now, the Canadian Civil Liberties Union has said they are planning on suing the government for making that call. They think the circumstances didn't meet the standard required to invoke the act. They're concerned it could embolden police against any dissent in Canada, including protest movements like Black Lives Matter and Indigenous Land and Water Defenders. Again, by the time you hear this, the government will have voted on the Emergencies Act. It's scheduled for Tuesday morning. What you need to understand is that under the legislation, the powers of the act take effect immediately once they're invoked. However, the government is still required to table a motion to confirm the declaration of emergency within seven days. If the vote fails, the Emergencies Act stops being in effect. If it passes, it can be upheld for 30 days unless an extension is confirmed by the House and the Senate. The NDP has said they'll vote for the act, so it's likely the Liberals will have the votes they need. So before we broaden the conversation... I do want to discuss the domestic politics of it, which are changing so quickly. Murad, you're in Ottawa. You're closest to Parliament Hill. What are the impacts or consequences of enacting the Emergencies Act? So there's a bunch of implications. One of the ones that my colleagues in particular have been covering most closely are the financial and banking implications. There's been a lot of money donated to this movement via crowdfunding platforms, via cryptocurrency, and the uh, emergency powers are being used to try and stifle that flow of money, whether that's by freezing accounts or uh, having banks report what they consider to be suspicious transactions to anyone involved. There is a lot of uncertainty around how these measures are being implemented how the particular accounts of organizers are being targeted. You know, is this going to affect people who have made the donations or just the people receiving the donations? How do you identify the people in the protest if they have joint accounts? How is that going to affect them? So uh, this is all just a, a small illustration of the uncertainty that comes with an action that is you know, in in a two years where we say unprecedented all the times, the use of these powers in this particular form, there's not an easy model for the banks to follow, for the government to follow, for journalists to follow. A lot of it is being made up as, as we go along. There's a lot that is still being sorted out and will still be sorted out once, even once these, these people are actually off the hill, if that does happen today. I don't imagine the political discourse during the emergency debate is going to answer all of the questions that you so aptly laid out, Murad. So I'm wondering, Jason, you've also been following this closely. At what point do we talk about accountability for the failures of our different levels of government that has led to the use of the Emergencies Act? In one way, it's too late. And in one way, it's too early. It's too late because we already are. I mean, uh, Chief Slowly is gone uh, from City of Ottawa. They've had a whole bunch of reckoning on which councillor sits on the police board. We've already lost Aaron O'Toole in this, a Conservative Party leader. Um, there are various frustrations with Jason Kenney. I mean, as there always have been, uh, you know, a whole bunch of big feelings about Doug Ford. Um, and gosh, there are a whole bunch of big feelings about uh, Trudeau out there. So accountability is, is you know, already happening there. But I think a lot of the discourse about the Emergencies Act is really going to be looked at how it was used. Not why it was invoked, but how it, how effective it was. Did it stop this effectively? It's Friday. Yesterday, we saw pretty dramatic scenes of them arresting some of the protest organizers, Tamara Litch and Chris Barber. Those are things that they didn't need the Emergencies Act to do. As Murad pointed out rightly, the freezing of financial accounts is those things that you have to, you know, that's an unusual thing. You know, banks freeze accounts all the time, as anybody who's been in real trouble with the banks would tell you, or has been in legal trouble. 
But to do it with this swiftness, this uh, lack of uh, liability or uh, court orders um, or other orders, uh, that is something new. A lot of this has to do with narrative. Ottawa Trudeau knew that the, the buck was falling on him. He needed to do something big. This was a bit of a narrative piece. I was writing about this earlier, how everybody wants to control the narrative. Even the Coots blockaders in Alberta at the border said once there was that uh, siege of weapons and this, uh, you know, anarchist radical group taking, you know, trying to conspiracy to murder they were arrested for and charged with, um, they knew that they needed to control the narrative because they it wasn't a peaceful protest anymore. Ottawa's trying to control the narrative as best they can, too. So this show basically is saying that we mean business. But see, this is my problem with the whole way politicians are dealing with this situation. It's more about, um, you know, creating the, the perfect political response and making this a PR conversation to win the narrative battle as opposed to actually offering concrete solutions. And again, I don't imagine the emergencies debate that we're going to see on Parliament Hill over the next few days is going to be any different based on what we've already been seeing for the past few days. It's just been politicians lobbing attacks at one another and becoming literally the manifestation of the Spider-Man meme pointing at each other all the time. So, Emily, do you foresee getting any answers about the Emergencies Act, what it will mean for future protests and so forth? I don't think that we're going to see people coming out of uh, partisan attacks and, you know, um, deferring responsibility to each other anytime soon because... To be able to do that, it would need to involve really uncomfortable conversation about policing in this country that uh, I don't think most of uh, the players are involved are, are actually uh, willing to, to be having right now. There's a lot of analysis going on already, and a lot of it is going on on Twitter. When people are, you know, either pointing out to double standards or, or you know, trying to analyze what, what led us to the current situation and trying to have a little bit of perspective on what's going on. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not seeing that same conversation happening in, in, in Parliament. And um, the repercussion of what's going on right now in terms of how does it set a precedent for interacting with protesters. The contrast that we're seeing in terms of how everything in Ottawa is handled with white gloves, and I'm using that pun on purpose, uh, how is that going to have repercussion on every other social movement in Canada? The parliamentary debate is should be important, should be useful, but it's so unserious. You know, there are some people who are serious actors. I actually think the NDP is taking a moderate, you know, reasonable tone on, you know, yes, but well you know, here's why we need to do it, here's why it's very dangerous. There are a lot of sober liberal actors on this. But when the prime minister gets up in question period and does that little dance he did where he responded to a, a Jewish MP, Melissa Lansman's question, by saying, conservatives stand with the swastika, uh, that's a joke. You know, and the conservatives, so much of the conservative rhetoric with their leadership campaign and their positioning and their, you know, their politicking has been so unserious and radical and siding with some of the extremists. It's the last stuff we need. And I mean, it's almost unfortunate that this is the parliamentary debate that we wind up having. You know, that's question period. It is more dramatic, but it sets the tone for everything else that comes and the way that we all watch and see and view our parliamentarians in this moment. And it's a shame. In the here and now, what they say really is positioning for the rhetorical battle to come after this actual practical situation has ended. I do want to zoom out because that's what the backbench does. And, and I want to talk about what 
the last few weeks have done to our relationship with the U.S. and the rest of the world. Because as much as we're having an internal crisis, I think that internal crisis is also being spread around the world and people are perceiving it in various different ways. The Emergency Act is being illustrated as a suspension of civil liberties worldwide. And more concerningly, the convoy itself is influencing movements from Cyprus to Argentina to New Zealand to the United States. France even outlawed trucker convoys for several days because of what was happening in Ottawa. We saw U.S. conservative personalities and politicians all over this. One Republican senator from Texas, Dan Crenshaw, tried to recruit Canadian truckers to the U.S. on Twitter with a link to a visa application. U.S. Republican elected officials, including Ted Cruz and Marjorie Taylor Greene, have called the convoy folk heroes and patriots. Rand Paul said he hopes the convoy comes to America to, quote, clog up cities, end quote. Canadian senators are being bombarded with calls and emails from Americans, according to Playbook, asking them to, quote, end the dictatorship in Canada. This is the first time in a while I've seen Americans so invested in Canadian politics. And I'm wondering, is this a new stage in our political relationship with our best friend and, you know, major trading partner? Because America is so polarized, it's becoming easier, unfortunately, to talk about the two halves of America. I mean, in terms of just the, you know, Biden administration and Democrats, I think they're looking at this with intrigue like they would any foreign entanglement and probably a bit like worried about it coming here. Whereas the very radicalized Trumpified conservatives are seeing this as hope and they are excited by this. They are seeing this as a new protest model. They did the Tea Party thing back, you know, a decade ago, and that worked a bit and it fizzled out. They did Trumpism, and it led to January 6th, and they need to figure out how to sort out that. This is a new form of action, and if they see that this is a way protesters and trucks can weaponize the ability to hold their breath till they turn blue, then they'll try it there. So they see this as a beacon of hope. They also see this as a great victory over liberalism. And a lot of, uh, you know, conservatives who never really thought of Trudeau are now going to talk about him in the same sentence as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Pelosi and Kamala Harris and Biden. Because they're excited about this as a new liberal progressive uh, villain to depict. And because America and Canada have such... Not similar political cultures, but we operate the same and we're, you know, we're neighbors. They definitely layer all of their assumptions or all of their impressions about what they are onto us. So this is, by and large, just a proxy war for the right in America. I do agree that it's a proxy war and it's showing because both from, you know, Democrats and Republicans, people are showing how they don't understand anything about Canada in the way that they're <laughs> interacting or, you know, commenting or or uh, dealing with these protests. So it seems like they're, you know, they're using what's going on in Canada as a way to make a point about their own concerns. But actually understanding Canada is not even on their radar. But there's also been some weird things coming from some uh, Democrat elected officials as well. For example, one ways in which the convoy has been used is by uh, trying to push back uh, the Buy American Act, basically saying that uh, if uh, the border uh, between the U.S. and Canada is going to be blocked, and it's just one more reason to make sure that electric cars are built with American parts only. And so basically people are trying to use what's going on in Ottawa only to build their own agenda, but the kind of comments are being made. I mean, it's really just calling the Ottawa protest peaceful, 
people are not interested in basic fast. They're just interested in making porn about themselves, which is really not surprising because this is what Americans do in general. We don't want to be a cliche there, but that's very much what a lot of us tend to do in general. But I think uh, the U.S. being such a big country that's very much self-involved definitely tends to do that uh, even more. But I also think there are interesting specific instances during this entire saga that we should get into. Mm. And one of the key ones is the fact that I think we saw a lot of Canadian leaders shift their narrative and what they were calling for when American politicians got involved in the conversation. Mm. So the Conservatives especially, including interim leader Candace Bergen and Ontario Premier Doug Ford, changed their tune about the protest when they heard from, for example, Michigan Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer uh, when the Ambassador Bridge was blockaded in Windsor. Even U.S. President Joe Biden, when he tweeted, got their attention. U.S. Representative Alyssa Slotkin, a Democratic politician in Michigan, she told CNN that Canadian authorities move slower than Americans would have if this had happened on the U.S. side. Murad, what do these instances tell you about the extent to which American politicians shape the rhetoric of Canadian politicians and even their decision-making? I would flip the causality, actually. So the Ambassador Bridge is a really concrete example of what this movement, this moment in time we're experiencing has meant economically, right? Um, As I understand it, about $400 million in trade goes across that bridge every day. The Ambassador Bridge blockade made this a concrete economic issue for the Americans, right? So what Jason and Emily have been talking about rightly so, is sort of the culture slash political war, proxy war. The U.S. has a long history of fighting proxy wars, sometimes actual wars. What the Ambassador Bridge in Michigan and that Detroit-Windsor link really added was a very concrete economic cost to the U.S. They were not doing this to intervene in the proxy political slash culture war. They were doing it because there's an economic cost to Michigan if you can't get auto parts across that bridge. About $50 million of auto parts goes both ways every day. So when that became concrete, you saw the Ford government, you saw the federal government, and you saw the Conservative Party and other parties start to get worried about it because there are workers on the ground at factories in Windsor and throughout southern Ontario who were being sent home because they couldn't work because there were no parts. So when I say I would flip the causality, what I mean is like, I wouldn't say it's so much that American politicians got involved and then Canada moved. I would say the Canadian political problem started to affect the uh, a U.S. state's economy, U.S. politicians reacted to that. And obviously that economic effect is, goes both ways. And so the Canadian government was forced to act. The stuff that goes across this bridge, uh, like it's um, like medical uh, supplies, it's, uh, you know, auto parts, obviously, some degree of agriculture. In Alberta, a whole bunch of agriculture at, at Coots. Uh, In Manitoba, similarly, you know, the U.S.-Canada trade relationship isn't like one unbroken seam. It's a whole bunch of like choke points. And so this is a very long way of saying, you know, I think where the sort of rubber meets the road on the economics, this, pardon the auto pun, given we've been talking about Detroit (laughs) and Windsor, that is where we've seen action. I think that's something else that Biden and Whitmer and other, a lot of other, you know, properly thinking um, American or governors or other leaders will think is we can't let the bad guys show they can hold this bridge hostage because that will inspire people to hold airports hostage and 
shipping ports hostage and other critical economic corridors and major factories hostage. And if we create, if we let them create this template for effective blockading of of infrastructure or of cities, then we are really screwed and we are really ripe to hostage taking. So I think that Biden, Whitmer and everybody else just wanted Canada to be able to show force, dismantle the ambassador bridge blockade and show that there's a way to do this without letting us uh, fester into what Ottawa has become. Which is really interesting because I don't know if you'd have the Ottawa occupation if January 6th hadn't happened. So <laughs> it's... it's uh... <laughs> It's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. <laughs> it's like, I, I see the points you're all making, and rationally I understand them, but at the same time, like, what does that say about our Canadian politicians? You know what I mean? Like, the the blockades at the border didn't start immediately. Ottawa was occupied first, and they didn't do anything. Businesses were hurt. Citizens were hurt. Like, I know so many like of my friends in Ottawa who had to leave to the suburbs if they had option, or just sit there and suffer. And the politicians didn't act until the border was threatened and economics was threatened and capitalism was threatened. And maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I kind of was a little bit. And that's why I kind of see a slight causality. I'll say the biggest reason that happened, well, two reasons that happened is one, I think there was a huge tactical blunder by slowly in Ottawa that this was that these guys were just coming for a good time on the weekend and leaving Two. It was a much bigger, more geographically complex area. Border blockades are one concentrated area where they're blocking an intersection or road, and they were smaller and easier to dismantle, especially at the Master Bridge. Coots, those guys left after it became clear that there were a whole bunch of uh, armed goons. So part of it is just tactical ease. I also think that a lot of what's going on is about the Conservative Party doing a lot of soul-searching. A lot of us will remember, just like at the end of January, the whole focus and obsession of conservatives, because at the end of the day, the pretext of what's going on right now is vaccine mandates for truckers, right? So when that mandate was about to be implemented, you had conservative MPs going on the air saying that because some truckers in the U.S. are not, or in Canada, are not vaccinated, you might have food shortages in our store and it might impact our very fragile uh, supply chains that have been fragilized by the pandemic and that we cannot afford any more pressure on our supply chains and that ordinary people are going to pay for that because inflation is going to happen if anything happens to destabilize our, our supply chains. And two weeks after that, They were supporting blockades to some of our most important border crossing. And so it shows how they're just like basically hesitating between are we here to basically protect, you know, worry about inflation and all of that. And you had like obviously like Jason Kenney even tweeting fake pictures of like empty grocery stores in Alberta trying to stoke a panic around that. Is that what they're trying to do or are they trying to go with, I guess, the, the populist movement that's rising? And so I guess they need to figure out their priority. So at the end of January, the first, the earlier was their priority. Mid, mid-January, the second one was their priority, and now that maybe they're trying to shift back to the first one and trying to say, hey, maybe we had the right take when we're worrying more about, you know, protecting our supply chains and, and whatnot. So I think they're caught in between those two priorities, and they don't know exactly what they're standing for right now. Yeah, see, politics and economics intersecting. This is the conversation we wanted to have. Um I've been thinking about this a lot because I feel like the U.S.-Canada border has been under a magnifying glass since the pandemic started. Like the policies around the border, how we deal with it, the trade that happens and the way it happens has literally been scrutinized constantly since the lockdowns began. And I'm curious what effect, if any, the convoy will play into it. 
Murad, I, I noted that recently we wrote a story for The Logic about how Canada is looking for new export markets. And the U.S. is one of our biggest markets and one of our besties and our neighbor. And if they're not happy with us and our handling of this situation, that's probably not great for Canadian business. So do you see a long-term impact of all of this on our economic and political relationship? Diversifying Canada's trade away from the U.S. is like the hundred-year project of this country that we never seem to get around to. <laughs> but I think Emily made a good point when she, you know, you she was pointing to the rationale, the Build Back Better bill, and the basically the protectionist impulses that are being invoked. I know I keep coming back to auto, but auto is like an incredibly integrated industry. Any given part that ends up in a vehicle you might buy in the U.S. or Canada has probably crossed the border a couple of times at least. So certainly the recognition that there is geography involved with trade, you know, that there are physical locations where problems can occur, that I think is striking a lot of policymakers and executives at this moment. But I would say, you know, you pointed to the pandemic putting a lens on this, and I think that actually points to how this is much bigger than that. You know, one of the indicators where we realized that we're not actually actually one giant trading zone was during the Trump administration in the early part of the pandemic when there was some concern around blocking of uh, N95 masks coming across the border, right? And the Canadian government built industrial capacity to produce N95 masks because they were afraid that the Trump administration was going to stop that PPE coming across the border. There's been like a hundreds of versions of this over the course of the pandemic. And now this just sort of exacerbates that. I wouldn't imagine that this particular set of events over the last what, three weeks now, are going to create any fresh urgency on either side around the diversification of trade. But they do fit in with this broader pattern of Ottawa, of successive governments in Ottawa, of different partisan stripes, you know, not just the Liberals, Conservatives in the past as well, sort of saying, you know, if we are to be a sovereign country with sort of some control over our own economy, you know, we do need to have robust trading relationships beyond just this one major one to our south. It's always going to be more convenient for U.S. and Canadian businesses to trade with each other. And Canadians made a big show of this during the NAFTA slash USMCA negotiations. It's not just that we are very dependent on the U.S. for our trade. A large number of U.S states, their largest trading partner is Canada. It is truly both ways. We certainly depend on them more than they depend on us, but they do depend on us as well. So I think this has sort of shown how fragile those links can sometimes be, simply practically. To tie it all together, what do we want to see our politicians do once the situation ends? I think the interjurisdictional uh, reckoning on, especially in Ottawa, is going to be interesting. Should the federal government have more of a role? I mean, are we going to see some kind of, you know, more federal police role? Maybe the National Capital Commission police. And that gives me chills, given remembering from my Ottawa days about how poorly and how oddly the uh, National Capital Commission that controls a bit of Gatineau, a bit of Ottawa infrastructure uh, works. You know, because it seemed like Doug Ford wanted to pass the buck for a while, and Jim Watson wanted to pass the buck, and Trudeau wanted to pass the buck. It was all like, somebody deal with this. And you know, we ended up with this 20-some day disaster as a result. So there's going to be some hopefully responsible reckoning in that and not some weird knee-jerk thing. The other thing I'm really looking at is now that the cap is broken, who and how do we use the Emergencies Act next? Yeah, I think we do need to have some sort of an inquiry uh, into what happened that leads to some sort of a less recommendation in terms of what goes, where we should go, go from here. There's probably going to be a parliamentary commission but I really hope that that's not the only way we're going to be looking into it because it's going to be messy and so partisan. And I don't know 
how that could actually lead to any kind of like truth finding. Both the Liberals and the Conservative Party are implicated. I really hope we'll have some sort of a process to look into it that's not going to be led by folks who have partisan affiliation. That may be wishful thinking, but that's what I'm thinking about. I also think there's been some early indications of really important investigative journalism coming out about what happened internally in, in, inside the uh, Ottawa police. The internal conversations around what to do with this protest and who actually, you know, insubordination, uh, p- police uh, sympathizing with the protesters, how that played a role or not in what happened. I want to know that, and I think a lot of people want to know more about that. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Jason? I request leave to do something that might be considered unparliamentarian. I would like to talk about your last Twitter direct message conversation with me, with your permission, Madam Speaker. I consent to you breaking personal privilege. To party consent. Excellent. This goes back to February 10th, the first time I've heard from Fatima in a while. She uh, mentioned to me uh, something I'd written up as part of McLean's power rankings um, for the latest issue. And she highlighted the fact that at number 26, in a blurb I had written, was the Curse of Politics podcast. Now one Jenny Byrne short of a trio because she's gone to Pierre Polyev, but also uh, featuring David Hurley and Scott Reed, the former liberals. She said, well, they're on the backbench. What's up? <laughs> I said, well, that would be a conflict. But it also got this interesting little conversation we had about what the backbench is in its first magnificent year of existence. It's a great podcast, but I think by design, it's not power list fodder at this point. You know, we are not the ex-politicos, wise and old insiders talking about the good old days. I'm personally just happy that we know that you're not going to lose uh, any backbencher anytime soon to, like, a leadership campaign <laughs> for a major political party. I think that's a good thing for the backbench that we're not into that situation. We are these weirdos and misfits, sort of. I mean, I'm a mainstream journalist. What do I say? I'm a misfit. Who are you calling a weirdo? Oh, no, I'm doing Mostly Murad. Um, <laughs> I mean, harsh but fair. <laughs> and, no, uh, I love y'all. <laughs> Uh, but I think I think we would kind of be, I think it would be an offense to uh, the backbench to be on on a power list. I think we are delightfully unpowerful um, right now. That is not a point of order because it sounds like free promotion for a rival podcast, and it didn't include an apology. It was actually covert promotion for McLean's magazine <laughs> and our power list. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Emily? I'm heartbroken, and I think a lot of Canadians are because we just don't understand what the New York Times is doing. (laughs) 
And a lot of us, obviously, if you're listening to this, you're likely to also listen to other podcasts, including The Daily. And when uh, something that's as powerful in terms of its audience gets it wrong, it's it's just this convoy coverage is not cutting it. I'm heartbroken and I want to express my grief and share my deepest sympathies with everybody else who's also heartbroken about, about what's been happening. Not a point of order, but welcome to the group of us who have unsubscribed from one of the newspapers that we revered for a very, very long time. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. And since this point of order section has been a little meta, it's meta. What is your meta point of order, Marat? So I want to commend my colleagues in the press gallery who've been out there covering this occupation day after day. Because after they file their reports, they have to live in this city. And they didn't fly in from New York or drive in Toronto for a few hours to, like, catch some vibes to make their pieces feel more authentic. They've had abuse to their faces. They've had abuse online. They've had abuse from, like, deranged foreign TV channels. They're showing up to do their jobs. And that, I think, has been incredibly inspiring as someone who lives in the city but doesn't have to cover it, what's going on. Um, so I apologize for being sincere. I know I don't do it often, uh, but uh, I'm going to speed through this list sort of Oscar style uh, and hope uh, that uh, I don't get played off. But I want to shout out the reporter specifically uh, at uh, CBC, CTV, Global, the Toronto Star, the Global Mail, the Ottawa Citizen, the National Post, not their columnists, their reporters, uh, Le Devoir, La Presse. The Journal de Montreal, my bureau made at The Logic, Dave Gravely, the Winnipeg Free Press. These are people who dun, like... Dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think this has been an interesting instance of like, you know, everyone is entitled to their opinions, but I feel like the reporters on the ground uh, have been doing the work while we've had people sitting thousands of miles away judging their work, which is fair. We're open, as open to criticism as anyone else, but it has not been a fun time to be a reporter in Ottawa if you're, you're covering this, and I think they deserve some love for the work that they've done. Not a point of order, but yes. And, and also, by the way, screw the police for saying, if you're media, stay out of this area and come to our press conference at 4 p.m. That's not how any of this works. So buried into last Monday's media availability relating to the declaration of the Federal Emergencies Act was another very significant announcement. In light of the seriousness of the situation and following conversations with our Ukrainian partners, I've approved the provision of $7.8 million worth of lethal equipment and ammunition. The Prime Minister also announced another $500 million loan. All this is in addition to the $120 million for economic resilience and non-lethal weapons promised back in January. Now, we're recording on Friday, and things could move very, very quickly over the next few days. On Friday night, in a televised address from the White House, U.S. President Joe Biden said the U.S. had reason to believe that Russian forces were planning to and prepared for an imminent attack any day now. Russia says it does not plan to invade Ukraine, but it has assembled more than 100,000 troops and Marines on Ukraine's northern and eastern borders, as well as in the Black Sea to the south. We're now hearing reports that communities at the Ukraine-Russia border are being advised to move over to the Russian side due to Ukrainian aggression as well. 
Notably for us here in Canada, the federal government just pulled its military trainers out of Ukraine and also relocated its embassy operations from Kiev to Lviv, a city in the far western part of the country near the Polish border. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie has urged Canadians to return as soon as they are able to, even setting up emergency routes for Canadians into neighboring countries. Notably, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress has applauded Canada's new commitments, calling them a major policy shift. Jason, what the fudge is happening here? Like, what are we shifting towards and where are we shifting from? Please explain. Forget about all the geopolitical. The potential human tragedy at this point is terrifying. And this is a pretty ruthless dude, Vladimir Putin. This is somebody who is alleged to have, in 1999, triggered apartment buildings to collapse with people in them as a prelude to uh, operations in Chechnya. It was really interesting to me, just on a kind of a political conversation part of it, that it was on Monday bundled into the Emergencies Act announcement that Trudeau made this announcement. And, you know, my analysis is that he did that for two reasons. One, he knew that no matter when he made it, the Ukrainian Canadians and the uh, groups like the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress that was asking for something like this would hear it and would praise him. And that, that group, this, you know, a very substantial diasporic group that is very engaged in politics uh, in all parties, would hear that. So that was very important, too. But also that you know, those people, especially the progressives within the liberal camp who despair of armaments being shipped and you know, spending money to help bolster you know, military conflict and armed conflict, that those, you know, people wouldn't be talking about that. That they didn't even bother having, not only did they put, put this, you know, announce this as they're announcing the Emergencies Act, which has a whole different range of uh, anxieties and emotions for people um, who were on the progressive side, but not even having a separate news conference for this. So we could ask, say, Melanie Jolie or Anita Nand or international development ministers. That was a very, uh, a very canny thing, I would say, that, uh, that Justin Trudeau did to limit the extent to which people are having conversations like this about it. I will say that there are 1.3 million Ukrainians in Canada. So this is a topic of interest to a large segment of the Canadian population. In the few interviews that Minister Jolie has done, she said that Canada is working with allies to coordinate multiple sanction packages containing a vast array of increasingly strong measures targeting Russian people and entities that are ready to go on, quote, day one if Russia invades Ukraine. She didn't go into details except to say it could involve seizing assets and travel bans on specific individuals. Murat, how significant are sanctions like this for a major oil exporter like Russia? Well, I point out this isn't the first round of sanctions, right? There have been various direct sanctions on officials within the uh, current governing regime in Russia over past controversies. To what you were talking about earlier, there's this interesting two-step, right? The, the, the like arms that were announced Friday, when the first announcement was made, it was very clear that it was non-lethal uh, sort of defense-related uh, equipment. And so effectively, the entire thing's flipped. What was it? It was like the last week of January, Trudeau, Freeland, Jolie, Anand came out and made this announcement. We're increasing the deployment of trainers. Uh, we're going to keep those trainers there. To train the military, we're sending non-lethal arms. I was watching that press conference. Most of the questions were about, okay, but 
<laughs> the ambassador and other people have asked for lethal arms. Why aren't you sending those? And they wouldn't really sort of entertain those questions. And then as of Monday, the whole thing is flipped. The trainers are uh, are being sort of withdrawn and now it's lethal arms. And I think that there was some understanding that in January we were waiting for the U.S. to kind of take a, a clear position and, and sort of indicate how they were going to react so that we could follow in behind. But there is a broader context, which I think Christopher Freeland who I know that some people sort of have complicated feelings, let's say, about her attachment to Ukraine, uh, but is someone who, you know, has been in Russia and covered the Putin government and is banned by that government. She sort of was laying out the position in late January, and she said, this is a struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. This is a direct challenge to the rules-based international order. And she positioned Canada as sort of a beneficiary of those things, and so we need to be we need to do things and we need to be seen to do things because this is the world in which we want to live and operate. Frequent listeners of the backbench will know I'm not a, often a fan of the symbolism of government taking precedence over the actions of government. International conflict is one of those arenas in which, you know, the era of Canadian peacekeeping is long gone. RIP. Symbolism is a lot of what we have. I'm still struggling, to be honest, to fully understand Canada's decision on this crisis and the will to play such a strong role in this crisis and to explain it by any other way than by the huge force of the Ukrainian Canadian diaspora here. Because when I look at the issue, there's basically three kind of like entities going on. There's a NATO, which Canada is a member of, but a lot of it is about the European Union as well and European politics, which Canada is not a part of. And then there's a whole of it that's just basically this this face-off between U.S. and Russia that's been going on as well, in which we're just a side player. And what I think I understand is that one of the reasons for the timing of this raising threats coming from Russia is that Joe Biden just pulled out of Afghanistan and basically is, is basically announcing to the world that he's not interested in um going into wars that might, you know, go on for years and sending American troops abroad in something that's that could last for a year. There's already the trauma of what happened in Afghanistan that's still very fresh. And it seems like Vladimir Putin, Putin is, is testing uh, what the Americans are, are about. And I'm not sure what Canada can actually do about that. And I'm actually really not sure what Canada can do about renegotiating what Europe looks like and where the Western bloc extends closer and closer to the Russian border or not. And all of that that's being, that were part of diplomatic negotiation. I don't know where Canada's a player in that. So I feel like what the Canadian government is doing is, you know, backing up Ukrainian nationalists that are pro-Western bloc because it's also a country that is divided and it's something that we tend to forget. But the Ukraine diaspora in Canada is very much pro-Western and comes from the Western part of Ukraine, which shapes the opinion of what's happening here. So I get that, but I fail to understand why is Canada actually the one player that can solve this situation, given that the issues are either European or a lot of it is, you know, Russia versus U.S. I think that Canada's under no illusion that it's going to solve things by itself. I think it wants to make sure it is on team Western democracy, on team NATO, on team don't you dare invade your neighbor. I wonder how much of a team it is because it seems to me, from what I understand, that you know France and Germany might not be necessarily as intense in, in their response to this crisis 
to up to a point that then Canada and the U.S. might be in a sense that if uh, Russia was to do something that's not a full invasion of the entire territory of Ukraine, I think you might see uh, lines of fracture in terms of how NATO members uh, react to that. And that that may be one of Russia's endgame, just divide NATO mm. in terms of how, you know, where do they stand? So that's why I fail to understand why is Canada actually, you know, holding the harder line that even the people who are directly in Europe closer to Russia, NATO member politics might actually be something that Russia is looking forward to, you know, playing around those line of divisions and dividing the NATO, the, the you know, the NATO alliance in terms of how they react to what they're doing. So there might be even an interest to not do a full blown, full territory invasion just to be able to divide NATO. This is why you can't half ass an invasion. If you half invade and then over subsequent years, the whole of Ukraine's politics is about disentangling from Russia because in case it happens again, then like six years later, when you decide to go back in again, suddenly they don't want you as much anymore. I think I can actually tie all of your comments together because in an interview with the National Post uh, recently, Melanie Jolie said that, you know, Canada was trying to rebuild its reputation on the international stage after losing clout since the crisis in Afghanistan last summer. And if you recall, that left a number of Canadian Armed Forces interpreters and their families stranded. We're still dealing with the fallback of that and the promises that we made from that. So Jolie said, I'm happy that Canada has started to become more relevant again. I find that we had lost a lot of diplomatic power, especially Mm. on security Mm. issues. And this goes back to what Murad was saying, and I think all of you were saying, which is that we're, we're trying to somehow reinstate the same identity that we had like decades ago as peacemaker and peace builder and so forth. But call me a cynic, but are we becoming relevant again? Like, and is this the right situation to become relevant through? Canada has to live in the world, right? And I think that creates these problems. To Emily's point about, you know, France and Germany versus where we are, and, and they are obviously more in the direct line of sight of this thing. One into one understanding of that is, well, what standing does Canada have? But another standing, and I don't know whether I, I don't know whether I buy anything, but just sort of positionally, the answer that Freeland gave that day in January, which is basically like, look, we have to stand for things. And this is one of the things we happen to stand for is the international order as it exists now. Well, I'll just say if we're, if we're in the mood of like defending people against like invasion and wars, why Ukraine and not Yemen? And continuing to sell arms to the Saudi Arabians uh, as this happens. You know? Contradiction! <laughs> On that note, let's adjourn. Uh, That's the backbench. It's a very anxiety-inducing time and super stressful and super chaotic. We're going to be back in two weeks, but until then, please get in touch with us. We want to help you understand what's happening in Ottawa and beyond. Tell us what you're concerned about, what you're worried about, what you want to know more about. You can email us backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed, and you can find my work on the Narwhal. Where can people follow your work and your amazing insights and commentary? Jason, where are you? McLean's.ca and on the Twitter machine, if you can spell my name properly. <laughs> my last name. <laughs> Emily, where are you? <laughs> uh, Twitter, uh, Montreal Gazette, uh, Le Devoir. And Murad. 
I'm at thelogic.co for long words and uh, M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M on Twitter for short words. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening and we'll speak to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.